0: Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, The Starry Heavens Above, Robust Faith and Rigorous Science, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 17, 2006, Pluto's demotion to a dwarf planet by the International Astronomical Union and the good-natured protest that followed remind us of humanity's perennial fascination with what Immanuel Kant called the starry heavens above. I remember a few years ago my wife and I visited Stonehenge where 5,000 years ago architect astronomers hoisted massive boulders into a circle based upon their knowledge, before they even started construction, of the summer solstice and how the sun's rays would strike their sight at a precise time and place. About that same time 5,000 years ago, stargazers in Egypt noticed how one morning every year, just before the Nile flooded, Sirius lined up with the sunrise. And so they designated that day the first day of their calendar year. I count myself as one of those who resonate with King David's psalm for this week. We read in Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. I still remember a chilly October night in remote Siberia near Lake Baikal in an evening on the outskirts of Nairobi when the ink-black sky was so densely populated with blazing stars that I felt like I could reach up and touch them. The immensity and grandeur of the galaxy those two nights made me feel insignificant by comparison. But I also somehow felt at home in the cosmos, as if those stars signaled a larger love who cared for me. Not everyone draws those same conclusions, of course, from Science's book of Nature. In her book, The Sacred Depths of Nature, the eminent cell biologist Ursula Goodenough recalls a camping trip when she was about 20 years old. She writes... I found myself in a sleeping bag, looking up into the crisp Colorado night. Before I could look around for Orion or the Big Dipper, I was overwhelmed with terror. The panic became so acute that I had to roll over and bury my face in my pillow. When I later encountered the famous quote from physicist Steven Weinberg, the more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it seems pointless, I wallowed in its poignant nihilism. A bleak emptiness overtook me whenever I thought about what was really going on out in the cosmos, or deep in the atom. If the only evidence that a person had was the book of nature, our scientific knowledge of our universe, with its hundred billion galaxies, each one containing a hundred billion stars, What conclusions might one reasonably make about the existence of God? Whose wisdom would prevail, that of King David in Psalm 19 or Ursula Goodenough in the sacred depths of nature? Some scientists opt for atheism, Weinberg, Carl Sagan, or Richard Dawkins. But the empirical evidence alone doesn't necessitate that gloomy position. Elsewhere in her book, Goodenough tries to sweeten the sour apple by embracing what she calls a non-theistic religious naturalism. Others, like Albert Einstein, appeal to something like cosmic awe. Einstein was decidedly irreligious in the sense that he spurned all institutional affiliations. He never attended worship services or prayed. He rejected all dogmatic theology, like miracles, the afterlife, or prayer. He didn't believe that God was in any sense personal, and he was a strict determinist. But he found it impossible not to think of himself as religious in the sense of humility and awe at the mystery, rationality, and complexity of the cosmos. The eternal mystery of the world, wrote Einstein, is its comprehensibility. For Einstein, the mysterious book of nature betokens some superior intelligence. I believe in Spinoza's God, he wrote, who reveals himself in the orderly harmony of what exists, not in a God who concerns himself with the fates and actions of human beings. Thus, Einstein repudiated those whom he called, quote, the fanatical atheists, end quote, who tried to claim him for their cause. About a year before he died, he wrote in a letter that he understood himself to be what he called, quote, a deeply religious unbeliever. Philosophic or religious extrapolations based only upon the empirical evidence of science face strict limitations. Despite its prodigious explanatory power and the countless ways that science has benefited humanity, by itself, the scientific method operates with two important constraints. First, it cannot make the epistemological claim that the scientific method is the only way of gaining valid knowledge. Science can inform and complement but by itself it has no ability to fully address the most meaningful questions about being human. The love of a mother for her child, the beauty of a Mozart opera, the purpose of life, the meaning of death, the rational intelligibility of the world, the persistent religiosity of human beings throughout history and cultures, how to determine right and wrong, what existed before the Big Bang 14 billion years ago, or how life originated after the Big Bang. Second, science cannot make the metaphysical claim of materialism, that nature and the physical world are all there is to know. When it does that, it has drawn conclusions that its data do not require and entered the realm of metaphysics or philosophy. Stated positively, the Cambridge particle physicist and Anglican priest John Polkinghorne observes that science has enjoyed immense success precisely because of the modesty of its ambitions, by its self-limitations to describe only the physical world. As a result of these two constraints, I find a narrowly scientific world unsatisfying, both intellectually and and emotionally. Given the limited purview of science, many scientists acknowledge that by itself the Book of Nature is insufficient for a well-rounded world view. In addition to the Book of Nature about God's world, Christians appeal to the books of Scripture containing God's Word. The overall plot of the Christian story makes two basic claims one stupendous and the other scandalous. These nourish a robust faith in addition to rigorous science. The Hebrew scriptures make the stupendous claim that the transcendent God who flung the hundred billion galaxies into space out of nothing is like an attentive mother or tender father who cares For each and every human being who hears our every help, our every cry for help, and who intervenes to act for our good. The alternate psalm in the lectionary this week, Psalm 116, affirms exactly what Einstein denied, that God speaks and acts, he loves and he listens. We read in the beginning of Psalm 116, I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The Hebrew poet stakes a claim far beyond Goodenough's impersonal mystery or Einstein's cosmic awe. To this stupendous claim that God deeply loves and cares for me, the gospel for this week makes the scandalous claim that God's compassion for all creation is most fully revealed in the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that, as a consequence, as we read in Mark chapter 7, 31-35, whoever wants to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. On June 26, the year 2000, the medical geneticist Francis Collins stood next to President Bill Clinton in the East Room of the White House, where together they announced to the world that the Human Genome Project had completed a first draft of all 3.1 billion letters of the DNA code. Today, said Clinton, we're learning the language in which God created life. As head of the project, Collins had managed over 2,000 scientists in 20 genome centers in six countries. In his new book, The Language of God, Collins remembers that day in the White House as both a celebration of a stunning scientific achievement and also as what he calls, quote, an occasion for worship, end quote. Instead of scowling or staring at the floor in embarrassment because of Clinton's explicitly religious remarks, for Collins the day celebrated the best of two complementary worlds, robust faith in a generous God and rigorous science committed to understanding his world. And now for further reflection. What do you think accounts for the antagonism, real or perceived, between science and religion? What religious experiences, positive or negative, have you encountered in nature? Three, the natural world is also a source of suffering. Hurricanes like Katrina or congenital birth defects. How does a Christian worldview account for that in its doctrine of creation? And then finally, for further study, see the following books. First, Francis Collins, head of the Human Genome Project, The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief in God from the year 2006, Second, Finding Darwin's God, the year 2000, by Brown University biologist Kenneth Miller, and then the forthcoming books by the Harvard astronomer Owen Gingrich, God's Universe, and the Oxford biologist and outspoken atheist Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion. For books this week, I review Francis Collins' The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief in God, New York Free Press 2006, 295 pages. On June 26, 2000, Francis Collins stood next to President Bill Clinton in the East Room of the White House, where together they announced to the world that the Human Genome Project had completed a first draft of all 3.1 billion letters of the DNA code. Today, said Clinton, we're learning the language in which God created life. As head of the project, Collins had managed over 2,000 scientists in 20 genome centers in six countries. Not bad for someone who was born, raised, and homeschooled on a dirt farm with no running water or no farm machinery. Collins describes that day in the White House as both a celebration of a stunning scientific achievement and as an occasion for worship. Written for a non-technical general readership, this book relates why Collins strongly believes that robust faith and rigorous science complement each other. In non-polemical language, he rejects the beliefs of those who insist that science and faith necessarily conflict like the atheist Richard Dawkins, or young Earthers like Henry Morris. He also rejects the view that they should be compartmentalized into what the Harvard biologist Stephen Gould called non-overlapping magisteria. In Part 1, Collins chronicles his journey from agnosticism to atheism to theism, and finally to a specifically Christian faith, A faith provoked by a bedside conversation with a dying woman, then nourished by reading C.S. Lewis. In another chapter, he deals in quick succession with four common objections to faith. The ideas of Freud, evil done in the name of religion, the problem of suffering, and then miracles. Part two covers the origins of the universe, the beginnings of life, and then in what is in some ways the most interesting chapter of the book, Collins' personal account of the human genome project that culminated with Clinton's announcement. The six chapters of part three comprise the bulk of the book. In separate chapters, Collins dispatches with atheism and agnosticism, when science trumps faith, creationism when faith trumps science, and also intelligent design when science needs divine help. He opts for theistic evolution, what he calls biologos, where science and faith complement each other. Throughout the book, Collins only tries to make a case for general theism, but in his last chapter he relates how he moved from a general theism to an active commitment to a specifically Christian faith. A final appendix treats a number of bioethical challenges, like medical genetics and stem cell research. Collins has written a winsome book for a popular audience that also manages to be very direct in its objections to obscurantist Christian zeal, or on the other hand, overzealous atheistic scientists. I suspect that his book will be more important because of its author, who rightly commands respect, rather than for what he wrote, which treats complex matters at a very basic level. Those who are interested in more technical treatments can compliment Collins with the works of John Polkinghorne, Kenneth Miller, Ian Barber, Arthur Peacock, Michael Roos, and others. Francis Collins... The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief in God. For film this week, I review The Boys of Baraka from the year 2005. Every year, the Baraka School selects 27th grade boys from the most violent ghetto of Baltimore, where 76% of male students don't graduate from high school. They select these kids to spend two years at their all-male boarding school in rural Kenya. This documentary movie won awards at six film festivals for its portrayal of one such class, with a special focus on four of the boys, Richard and his brother Romesh, Montre, and then the budding preacher Devon. The first 20 minutes of the film takes place in Baltimore, where we experience the horribly dysfunctional context in which the boys live. We meet their families, learn of their selection to Baraka, and watch as their mothers bid them tearful goodbyes at the airport. The next forty minutes document their lives in Kenya, culminating their first school year by climbing Mount Kenya. Then the last twenty minutes follows them back home to the Baltimore Ghetto for eight weeks of summer vacation. An unexpected plot turn at the end of the film ratchets the emotional quotient of this fantastic film even higher than you could have imagined. This is one of the finest films I've watched in a long while. The Boys of Baraka. And finally for this week, for poetry, we've posted a hymn by Henry F. Light, L-Y-T-E, who lived from 1793 to 1847. Light was a Scottish pastor, writer, and poet who was plagued by ill health his entire life. He died just three weeks after he wrote this favorite hymn that is famous to many people entitled Abide With Me. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. The darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, Help of the helpless, O abide with me. Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day, Earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away. Change and decay in all around I see, O thou who changest not, abide with me. Not a brief glance, I beg, a passing word, but as thou dwellest with thy disciples, Lord, familiar, condescending, patient, free, come not to sojourn, but abide with me. Come not in terrors, as the King of kings but kind and good with healing in thy wings. Tears for all woes, a heart for every plea, come, friend of sinners, and thus bide with me. Thou on my head in early youth didst smile, and though rebellious and perverse meanwhile, thou hast not left me, oft as I left thee, On to the close, O Lord, abide with me. I need thy presence every passing hour. What but thy grace can foil the tempter's power? Who, like thyself, my guide and stay can be? Through cloud and sunshine, Lord, abide with me. I fear no foe, with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight, and tears no bitterness. Where is death's sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still, if thou abide with me. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. Abide with Me by Henry F. Light Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 17th. 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.